even just being able to have those kinds of conversations with people yeah. so that patients can hear what that sounds like, you know? Um, yeah, right. I, I'd be interested in that. I just have to wrap my mind around a little bit more. <laughs> have I, you thought you know, about I think that? Of, yeah, no, I think it's, I, I have actually. And I, I, I think, you know, part of it is that we're so busy in the clinic, you know, just seeing the patients, but there's so many patients that have pretty similar things that, you know, these are patients, it's hard for them to read stuff, and I always feel bad we give them pamphlets, but they're, you know, it's almost a kick in the teeth, right? Like, you're having trouble with your eyes. Here, go home and read this pamphlet. Like, really? Yeah. Uh, but having something to listen to, I mean, a lot of them are hard of hearing in our practice, but still, they could put on some headphones, and uh, it would be a nice thing that the office could say, hey, you know, these docs were talking about your treatment of white AMD, why don't you listen to this? And so here's a, here's a link to it. You know, podcasts have become, I mean, at least for me, I listen to podcasts all the time when I'm working out or when I'm running, riding, riding my bike, I'm listening to them all the time. And it's really a great platform. And I don't know. I mean, are there people that do this for patients? I, I assume in some respects, not many. but to have, yeah. yeah, not many. Yeah. But I think and it's a great it, idea. I, it's a great idea. Yeah. Well, let me know. I think the question you'd have to, well, I think the question you'd have to answer, it would be, would be, okay, well, what's, what's the goal? Do I want to have a goal of like really short, you know, short conversations where we're talking about, you know, here's the things you can do for your wet AMD. Here's the things you can do to prevent wet AMD. Here's the things you can do, you know, and then sort of chop that up. But, you know, podcasts are timely. So, Mm -hmm. you know, if, if you're doing a 10, let's say you're doing a 10 minute podcast, you're going to, you don't want just to have a, a amalgamation of just a whole bunch of different ones. We said, yeah, go listen to episode here. That might be helpful, but you know, right. the value of podcasts is the ongoing, you know, the ongoing listener. So right. you may be repeat conversations and, but um, yeah, I think there's probably some space for that. So maybe you and I can talk about it in the future. Yeah. Let me know. Cause I think that to have an optometry ophthalmology perspective and you know can always bring other people in too of course to the conversation right from all of both of our fields and researchers and patients even sometimes to hear from a patient who's been through something like an intravitreal injection for instance what's it like the first time or these types of things people might want to sort of hear that or you know what was it like after the injection when you went home yeah my eye was burning and irritated People might listen to be able to listen to that and make them feel a little bit better and things. So I, for me, it's just a matter of educating the patients or providing them. And there's so much going on right now that I think that uh, it could be helpful. And it could also be helpful just imagine, for instance, from a research standpoint, like there's a new clinical trial going on, right? And the patient and the patients are being recruited for the trial. And you know, you could say you could have sit down and talk to the primary investigator of the trial and say, you know. Uh, you know, what are you trying to find out? What are the risks? What are the benefits? And then the patients would be recruiting for the trial. You just say, go listen to this podcast. So, you know, it could be, it could, it could be part of the clinical trials that are coming out. There's this, you know, this way of getting information to the patients uh, and yeah. just from a conversation. Cause again, I, you know, yeah. the patients come in, I'm pretty quick with them. I, the coordinator talks to them, but maybe they want to hear it again when they go home or play it for their kids and say, this is a trial I'm interested in. These guys are talking about it here. And, you know, some of the trials, some of the bigger companies make up some sort of somewhat fancy, you know, videos and things, but not always though. And it takes them a while to get it out and things. Whereas this would be something you could sit down and do it pretty quick, right? 
Hello and welcome to Chris Wolf Podcast on iCode Media. Today I had a great conversation with Dr. Dante Paramici, who is a retinal specialist with Retinal Consultants of America. And we talked about a number of things. It was a lot of fun, but primarily I wanted to have him on to pick his brain about a port delivery system for anti-VEGF injections so that patients can have less burden from their treatments for their wet macular degeneration. So I had a ton of fun with this conversation for a number of reasons. I hope you do will as well. As always, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, write a review, share it with your friends, and support those who support us. I think we're in the best time to practice optometry. Yes, on this podcast, we've discussed the expansion of corporate entities, vertical integration, online retailers, and unproven technology. But I truly believe if we're taking care of our patients and offering the newest and best options for their eye health and vision, these disruptors will only serve as a clear distinguisher between what patients can get from them and what they expect from us. In our practice, we've had a ton of success for our patients in terms of comfort, vision, and stability with proven optical designs of Cooper Vision's Biofinity Torque. The Biofinity Torque Multifocal combines that torque design and its rapid stabilization with the flexibility and customization of the Biofinity Multifocal Lens. This provides our presbyopic astigmatic patients with an excellent option for minimizing their dependence on glasses. Check out the show notes and link to Cooper Vision's website for contact lens parameters and more release information. What's things like there for you? Are you in San Francisco? No, I'm actually in uh, Santa Barbara, which is just about an hour and a half north of L.A., as far yeah. as the COVID is concerned, not great right now. I mean, we have a lot of it, yeah, even in our little area. But uh, weather's nice, 85 degrees, sunny. Can't yeah. complain about that. But, uh, you know, yeah. but we got a lot of coronavirus out there. The ICUs are relatively full. I mean, you know, L.A. is just sort of set up. It's a, kind of a disaster waiting to happen for coronavirus just a lot of people live in households where there's multi, you know 10 people in a house and a lot of people work sort of frontline jobs uh, in the area and have been out and exposed and you know the governor's put on a lot of restrictions i think some of them are not that great for businesses of course uh, that don't make sense like restaurants you can't even eat outside uh in some of these restaurants so it's crazy um, it's crazy yeah i know and but don't you think that that something with within the these all these regulations? I mean, it's got to be. Again, I'm not a virologist or a, you know infectious disease guy, clearly. But mm -hmm. it's just so weird to me that um, that like you have places. It's got to just be more than than what's going on because you've got places like that aren't shut down nearly as hard. Right. That they're doing fine, and then you've got places like California mm -hmm. or New York where their their numbers are going up. Yeah, I mean, it's got to be more mostly about proximity. I think well, proximity of people. Yeah, I, I think it's more of a demographics and and you know what the people look like and how close they live and what they do for work and stuff. As opposed, you know, if you're out in the country somewhere, I'm sure it's relatively safe, right? I mean, there's not that large of gatherings and people aren't living so close together and things. But I mean, as you can see, it doesn't it doesn't seem to whatever mitigation strategy that try all of them you know it doesn't seem to work necessarily in my opinion 
And uh, does it bother uh, you? Because that's where I'm thinking is that if you've listened, if, if I'm, I wouldn't assume that you had, but you know what bothers me about it is that in this whole thing, the there's there's a there's no um, it's completely unfalsifiable. Right. If it's the case that our measures work, then we get to pat ourselves on the back and say, "Hey, look how smart we are. We're awesome." Because we right. just don't know what the norm is. We don't know what the the you know what a normal coronavirus pandemic is going to look like. Yeah, you know, and then people will try to you know after it's all over, they'll try to go back and say this city did this and this city did this. And, but again, it's like comparing apples and oranges. Sometimes it's not like a controlled clinical trial and things. So I don't know that we'll ever know. I'm hopeful for the vaccine, though. I mean, I've gotten. Have you gotten vaccinated yet, or? No, it's it's a mess no. in Omaha. You know the the three unless you're working for a medical center. You know the three ho- see, the three right. major hospitals in in Douglas County, they're hoarding them all. So I've got buddies yeah. across the state that have gotten their first doses weeks ago. Yeah, and um and you just can't get it unless you work for the for the hospital system. Right. right that's the same. That's basically the same thing here. It, they sort of rolled it out in the hospital. So to get it, you had to have a hospital ID or something, and. Now they're trying to, for instance, the hospitals are trying to get our employees. So we had to send over a list of all the employees and they have to take their badge or their, you know, their pay stub to show that they're a medical worker. But they're going to try, you know, to me, it's like they should just be opening up the football stadiums and have people just drive in and give them a shot in the arm and let, you know, just give it out as much as they can, I think. Um, worry about a second injection later on and just get everybody vaccinated because I think that's going to have the biggest impact in my opinion. But again, I'm not a, like you, I'm not a virologist, I'm a <laughs> retina specialist. So I don't even yeah. like viral diseases of the retina. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. Do you know anybody that does? That does what? Do you, likes that, Do you have any colleagues in retina that like viral diseases of the retina? They're, they're just so. like, oh, this is really interesting, and I feel comfortable yeah. and confident managing it really well. Not that many. I mean, I don't. You know, it's just it's one of those weird disease entities that are tough, right? And they're and they're scary too because it's like the retina's on fire type of a thing, and you know, you throw these medicines at them. I like. I'm a mechanical person. I like to fix things, uh, like fix bikes or things around the house where I can use tools and yeah. I don't know, throwing antiviral agents at things is not as, uh, but I'm glad there are some people, some uveitis people that seem to enjoy it. And, uh, but I don't know, maybe they, they sort of take it on and then later they think to themselves, God, did I really want this as yeah. a career? Yeah. Cause we've well, had that, a couple that of, that kind of you- brings up, yeah. no, no, go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say no, a couple it, of uveitis sort of- people. Yeah, in your in your RCA group. Yeah, yeah. Well, in our practice in particular, and as the years have gone on, they've become less enthusiastic about the uveitis patients. But anyhow, why do you think that is? Do you think it's because um, they're always hard patients? I mean, in general, it's just not, they they have a bad outcome anyway. And yeah, I mean, I mean no. Sometimes they do well. They just take a lot of work. I mean, you know, there's a lot of tests that you have to order. Then you got to follow up with the tests and. It's a lot of it. They take a long time. I mean, you know, in, in the retina world today, we schedule patients probably every five or 10 minutes, um, 15 minutes at most. And so it's crazy. You, yeah. So from just an efficacy efficiency standpoint, it's difficult. The uveitis patient comes in, they've got all these medical issues. You got to contact the rheumatologist, the primary care doctor. It's, uh, it's difficult. And then, you know, the testing, your biopsying and things like this are, are time consuming. So 
easier you know we enjoy just taking a quick look and this is what it is and let's you know here's a shot and see you next month type of a thing so, yeah yeah when you you know when you went to well when did you do your fellowship training I did. I fell, did my fellowship training in the ni- early '90s and uh, mid mid '90s, really. And uh, I was down at Emory University, and, I, and at that time, we were putting in these ganciclovir implants, which is really one of the first implants for the retina, for you know, to provide ganciclovir for the people with CMV retinitis. And I remember we were so busy. I mean, we do six, seven a day sometimes hmm. these ganciclovir implants because. This was in a time before the antiretrovirals, you know, that they use now for HIV that pretty much cured the CMV disease for the most part. So it's very rare that we see these types of patients. I mean, they were coming in left and right. And I worked under Dan Martin, who's now the chairman of the Department of Ophthalmology at the Cleveland Clinic. And uh, this was his area of expertise. I mean, his whole clinic was almost just HIV people. And... uh, that's pretty much dried up and that's great. I mean, you know, cause those were difficult eyes and when they detached, it was bad. You put oil in the eye and it was, it wasn't a happy thing. Hmm. You know, the, yeah. so, so that kind of brings up the, the one, I have a, a particular interest. I'm actually having dinner tonight. He was on the podcast before he's a pharmacologist who specifically uh, manages patients with HIV right now at the med center, but he's one of my good friends and my daughter, uh, Anthony Padani, he's at the med center in Nebraska, but, oh, um, HIV is fascinating to me. And, yeah. um, and so I, I won't go there because it's, because I, I think it's, um, I'll have a whole bunch of time to talk tonight about, about it to him, but the, um, you know, what, what I was going to bring up was that, you know, you probably, you mentioned that you're mechanical, you probably went into retina because you wanted to, you wanted to do technical things that yeah. uh, required high complexity skills. And yet you, you now made the comment that you're seeing patients every five to 10 minutes probably. Right. And you're taking a look, injecting, taking a look, injecting. What percentage of your day is, is kind of managed with or, or taking up, taking up with injections? You know, I'd say probably 50% of the patients I see are injection patients, meaning that they're getting intravitreal injections, mostly anti-VEGF intravitreal injections for things like AMD, of course, wet AMD and diabetic macular edema. And uh, now we're, you know, you treat other things too with anti-VEGFs. Sometimes patients with myopic CNV are getting injections and retinal vein occlusion patients with macular edema and neovascularization are getting injections and neovascular glaucoma we're treating. So we spend a lot of time giving injections and, you know, steroid injections as well. We use uh, Azurdex a lot and, and triamcinolone and triessence in patients as well. So uh, probably 50%. The other 50% is, uh, you know, potpourri of uh, retinal detachments, other diabetic patients, a- dry AMD, um, and uh, so forth, uh, macular holes. You can't, want to see, you can't want to see patients who have dry AMD. That's got to be it's, just sort of something that you're you're not interested in really managing. You'd rather let yeah, the ODs than the primary care or the primary general ophthalmologist do that. For the most part, yeah. I mean, it's kind of like wet AMD was 20 years ago. I'd see these patients and there wasn't a whole lot we could do. I mean, when I started in retina, we were doing laser photocoagulation. And, you know, once in a while, a patient would present with a little CNV outside the fovea you could actually treat. If it was subfovial, 
some people were advocating using laser, but these patients were pretty unhappy with you if you lasered the fovea. So that wasn't a great treatment. Then PDT came around and it was like a little bit better than nothing. It slowed down the disease, but patients don't really appreciate that. I mean, they, you know, it's like glaucoma patients. It's tough for them to appreciate the benefits you're giving them. And uh, MacuGen was the first drug, but it wasn't all that effective. And it was really you know, Avast and Bevacizumab, which changed everything. So for dry AMD patients, we're kind of at that same period in time. There's really not a lot we can do. I mean, we, you know, vitamins and dietary discussions and things like that. But I think, right, I think that for the optometrists, this is a good uh, good field, uh, good for them to have these discussions with them. I, we are involved in a number of clinical trials of new medicines that may help patients with particularly geographic atri, slowing down the progression of the disease process, a lot of the complement inhibitors and, and such. So I think there's hope that perhaps we may be at kind of that period we were 15, 20 years ago with wet AMD, where we may just be getting some treatments for that for at least for the more advanced patients and then perhaps we can start using some of these treatments early on and slowing down the process but you're right i think that for the most part these patients are well served by with general eye care you know with their ear to the ground that things are coming so that you know they they may be eligible for a clinical trial and um and that can be real helpful for patients i yeah, I think I think when you get to geographic atrophy, especially if you've got you know category three non-subbovial geographic atrophy mm-hmm. that um, that you, that could be close to the fovea, and and you may be able to just slow slow that progression down. What's been your sense in terms of the data you've seen or the clinical experience you have with some of that? Are you you're just you're just halting that progression to make it enlarge? There's no nothing right now that's going to take a, a dry area of geographic atrophy and shrink it. And if there were, what would, what would the mechanism be there? I mean, you'd have to rebuild the RPE. You'd have to, I mean, it'd be pretty complex. Yeah, you're exactly right. And we've been involved in research in both forefronts. I mean, I think the easiest thing, which is not easy to, to begin with, would be slowing down the progression of GA. And you can imagine a scenario where a patient has central GA in one eye and and is having progressive non-central GA in the other. They're noticing these things. We may not measure it. They may come in in the good eyes 2020 every time, but they're noticing that things are, you know, these cells in the parafoveal region are dying off and they're losing color vision, contrast sensitivity, and, and probably some difficulty with reading. I mean, you know, as you try to read and there's blind spots and such, it can be difficult. So, you know, if we could slow down that progression 20 or 30 or 40%, that might give them another 20 or 30 or 40% more time with usable vision. I think that's how you kind of look at it. You think just slowing down the progression of this little growing disc doesn't make a lot of sense, but perhaps giving them more time. And they'll really understand that if they've lost the vision in the other eye. And they're quite enthusiastic to be part of clinical trials and things. So that's that's number one. It's the slowing down of the progression. And I'm hopeful that within the next few years, we may have a product on the market that, that may be available to help with that. The second yeah. thing, as you say, reversing it, that's really what patients would love. I, I want the vision I had 10 years ago. I, right. I said, I don't, have a time, I don't have a time machine. If I did, I'd get in it too and go back 10, right. 10 years right. or so. But but we've tried things. I mean, you you hear about stem cells, RPE cells, implanting 
uh, sheets of RPE. None of these things, in my experience so far, have done much as far as reversing the disease process. Again, what we may be doing is putting in some growth factors or, or factors that may preserve some of the photoreceptors. But again, that'd be a slowing down of the progression. But reversing things, that's a difficult, difficult cha- challenge. Yeah. And cell, cell therapy is being looked at for everything. I think I'm hopeful that eventually it'll happen, but I'm not so hopeful it's going to be any time in the next few years, I mean, maybe five or yeah. 10 well, years. That's, and that's where the optometrist comes in, right? And, and Jim and I have had a, a, you know, a long history in terms of figuring out how do you, how do you prevent, well, and he was, I guess he was around within, that's how you, know, you and I got connected is you know, he was around to see us kind of develop, okay, what is the protocol going to be to try to reach these patients as early on in their disease state as they possibly can so we can have good conversations about them and intervene as appropriate based on clinical practice guidelines and current evidence. And so, um, so you know, for, for that, it's like try, just like everything else, like trying to prevent all the other stuff that we don't want to have, right? If I, if I have a stroke, it's a lot harder for me to have reversal damage, but if I can just make sure I've got a healthy lifestyle and low cholesterol and low blood pressure, likelihood that me, that I get a stroke is, is, uh, pretty low. Um, yeah. so, so in any case, I think that's really important. What, what I think is interesting is, you know, if we come back to this idea of, you know, kind of injection, 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 if we're going to talk about macular degeneration is, um, is it seems like, uh, in eye care, well, probably in anything, it's always about the timing of stuff that comes out. So I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, from a glaucoma standpoint, we've got new medications that are, that are, um, intracameral injections. No, they're, um, they're anterior chamber injections with mm-hmm. little devices yeah. basically now that release bromonidine. I can't remember the top off the top of my head, what that, what that name of that product is. But anyway, the, um, so the, uh, so that now is there to replace a drop, but then on the macular degeneration side for a while, we were saying, okay, well, what kind of drops could we administer at anti-VEGF medications through a topical form? We have these wonderful injections, but now it's, we, can we go topical? So I guess the point is, is that it's always about like, well, what's the new thing that we can do in terms of delivery systems to probably get us more options for delivery systems? And one of the things that you've been working on is sort of a port system to allow that delivery of anti-VEGF medications uh, over a period of time. So that's, yeah. that's kind of interesting to me. And I'd love to talk about and pick your brain about, um, you know, are well, why, why don't you think drops are going to be a, a good use for wet AMD or why haven't they been? And then mm-hmm. why is this an uh, alternative so that you're not having to inject 50 patients or 50% of yeah. your patients a day? You know, I think that it would be wonderful to have a drop. And I, you know, I, I appreciate your comments on this really, because, you know, as, as physicians, what we do is we do a lot of sick care, which means that we take care of sick patients that have sick eyes. What we really want to be doing is take, doing health, well care. I mean, we really want to be treating these folks early on when they're younger. We can identify what their risk factors are from their genetics or their, their eye examination. We start to see early changes. That would be a great time to intervene. The problem is our interventions today are very, you know, sort of risky. I mean, can you imagine a younger person with some druze and having injections in the eyes all the time? This is not going to happen. So right. if you want to have a delivery system to, to be giving to people early in the disease, you want it to, first of all, be efficacious, meaning that you can get the drug to where it needs to be to do what you want it to do, which is prevent 
really progressive loss of the cells in the eye and eventual neovascularization or GA. And you want to do it and you want to deliver it in a very safe fashion so that the risks are low. The benefits are going to take years to appreciate. So the risks are going to have to be low. So if we had a topical drop, that'd be great. I think the problem with most topical medications as far as retinal disease is actually getting enough of it back there uh, so that you can have an effect. Um, and uh, that's been a challenge. I mean, these are a lot of these are proteins that we're injecting into the eyes, monoclonal antibodies and complement inhibitors that are monoclonal antibodies. And these are relatively large and very difficult to get a high concentration of them to the back of the eye. And you look at uh, uh, some pictures, you can go online and look at the drug delivery to the eye. People are trying everything, you know, sub suprachoroidal delivery of drugs, intravitreal injections, intracameral injections, even some you know, devices that you uh, you can put into the conjunctiva that will slowly elude drugs, but getting them into the back of the eye is difficult. I think we've had some success with non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. They do seem to get back there enough, but to treat uh, wet AMD or dry AMD, I think we're going to need much higher concentrations of drugs. And so, you know, doing this on a long well, that, period of, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry, Chris. So yeah, no, I was just going to ask it because you know, that sort of leads us to that next that next point of you know your time as skilled as you are um, your time is probably best suited doing other things and focusing on other things and yet here you are kind of making these injections so I recall a few years ago they were looking at I want to say it was it's probably wrong but um, spironolactone comes to mind where maybe they were adding that to anti VEGF or there's some sort of topical. Was that is that correct? Am I remembering that correct? This is four or five years ago. Yeah, they've tried a lot but of try things. To beta blockers. the duration. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think beta blockers is one of the things they've tried, and they've had some success with it. I don't think they've had a real large scale study of it, but yeah, that's not a bad idea either. If you could find something that you could produce, you could deliver topically that would just supplement it and reduce the burden of therapy, because that's. At the end of the day, these injections every month or every two months are burdensome for the system. It's burdensome for the patient, of course, having to come in and have these injections. They have to get a driver. And particularly now with COVID and things, patients, these older mm -hmm. patients are frightful or fearful of leaving and going out. We don't want them to have to go out that much either, but they do want to get these injections so they come. It's it's burdensome for the uh, for our clinics too. I, like I said, it's been half the day doing injections. and. Um, you know, we could be doing other things and this would certainly well, be better. A perception. No, sorry, sorry. There's a perception. Yeah. So then the question I, that I, that I get curious about is there's this perception that injections are this high dollar value for the surgeon, like surgeons are getting rich off of them. But the reality is, is that the majority of what you're getting paid with those injections is covering the cost of medicine, not the, the pressure of your finger on the, on the trigger. Yeah. Of the, is that the, is that the correct assumption? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we do get some compensation from the injections and evaluations and things, but the drugs itself is almost a pass-through when you consider um, the costs of stocking the drugs and managing that. And You know, it, it, these are expensive drugs and they're difficult to manage. I mean, you know, $2,000 we pay for some of these drugs. And if a patient's insurance doesn't pay or the secondary doesn't pay, we could really be up up a creek. So there is a little bit of wiggle room with it. There's usually a little overhead percentage, but yeah, but it's not the drugs themselves. They've set it up in a way that we're really 
almost a pass through. We make money right. on the injections, but that's you know it's relatively you know small dollar amounts compared to other things one can do. It, so it would be it would be more worth your time to do a vitrectomy or to do a retinal detachment repair or something like that than it is to just you know depress a plunger. Yeah, in a patient, certainly more right. uh, up more up our alley of what we enjoy doing and uh, right. and making a big impact. But yeah, so finding ways well, to well, that reduce. Leads us, the, yeah. Yeah. yeah, sorry, sorry to interrupt. I was, I was I going to bring say, this right into our port delivery systems and other ways yeah. that we can do that to use your skills. Well, so the port delivery system is, uh, is a device that is uh, being produced and uh, studied by Roche Genentech and, uh, as a disclaimer. And uh, I do consulting for them as well, and I'm re an investigator for, on this project since, really since its inception. It would, the idea behind it is really twofold, to reduce the burdens of the number of injections you put for a patient. And second of all, what we've learned over time is if you look at how patients do with intravitreal injections, they do pretty well for the first year or two. They're pretty consistent with getting the injections. But if you look at real-world data, you look at like insurance claims data or Medicare data, over time, the vision drops. It goes back to the baseline. That's and it seems to be mostly associated with reduced injections. So I think people get burned out. Patients get mm. burned out. Physicians get burned out. Some of it's the natural disease progression, but some of it really is under treatment in the long run. So it's not a matter of only making the burden less, but to make the burden less may also improve the efficacy of these medicines. You know, three, four, five to ten years later. So that's the other hope mm -hmm. with this. So the port delivery system is uh, really, it's a little device that is placed surgically in the pars plana. It's about the size of a piece of rice and it holds 20 microliters. And the drug device can be refilled in the office. It's, it's, it sits in the subconjunctival space and then pokes into the vitreous cavity. And it has a little um, release factor on the other side. So it gradually releases the drug. And the drug, it's a simple device. It's really like a little bag in the eye uh, that releases drugs slowly over time. And it just follows simple diffusion from the high concentration to the lower concentration in the vitreous. And it's a device that, you know, based on the latter trial in some patients uh, on average in the high dose group could go almost 15, 16 months without needing mm -hmm. a refill. Uh, and so the that's refills, a long- refills, are yeah. they, sorry, sorry, the refills oh. are basically mm -hmm. similar to a, uh, an injection, right? So you're just, you, have, you don't have to peel back the conjunctiva, you can actually go straight through the conjunctiva into the yeah. port to refill? Yeah, it's yeah. a really, it's a nice little refillable little septum that there is, and it's under the conjunctiva, you can see it. We do it in the office, and it's very similar to an individual injection. A little bit harder for the doctor because you have to find the little septum and hit it perfectly. But from the patient's standpoint, it's actually more comfortable because the needle's not mm -hmm. going through the sclera. It just goes into the subconjunctiva, the conjunctiva, which we can numb up very well just with topical drops. And so they, from their standpoint, it's not a big deal. Uh, it's a little bit harder for the doctor because you got to find this. you got to come in perpendicular and... and the device actually gets flushed out with this special needle and then it refills it. So it flushes out the old stuff, uh, which is really very low concentration <laughs> drug, and then fills it with the new high concentration of the drug. Yeah, so, so essentially you're, you're saying that, I think it was a, is 100 micrograms per milliliter is the higher dose concentration yeah, that was in your that's, study? That's right. That's the oh, high I, dose. I that's, that's, 
Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. No, that and that's the high dose cons. That's the one that's being um, marketed now. The the lower dosages didn't work as well as far as the uh, the durability. They were you know months shorter than that, and but the safety and efficacy seemed to be pretty similar between the dosages. So better to go with the higher dose. And it's only twenty microliters in there, but it's a high concentration of ranibizumab. So it's not the same concentration that we inject with an intravitreal injection because we use 50 microliters for that but it's a high concentration in a small little space and uh, it slowly leaks out into the vitreous cavity over time and and as i said there are some patients that can go uh, i mean on average or meet the median time to refill is about 16 months so that's pretty good and um, would you anticipate that this would be a first line like is it fully fda approved yet or you're in phase no, three right now? No, the phase three clinical trial known as the Archway trial just reported data. They compared it, they refilled it mandated every six months and they compared it in a non-inferiority trial to monthly ranibizumab or Lucentis injections. And they got equal visual outcomes and equal anatomical outcomes, but only needing uh, two, th- two treatments, the fill at the beginning and the fill at six months. So at 40, 40 weeks, their outcomes were similar between the two groups. But in the intravitreal group, they had five times, you know, 10 on average, 10 and a half injections. So mm. it reduced the treatment burden by five times uh, with, you know, doing this. So this is the archway. So it's, it's going to be submitted to the FDA uh, shortly, I think, uh, for a potential approval. And it might get approval then for the use in wet AMD. It's also being investigated now for treating patients with diabetic macular edema and also for treating diabetic retinopathy. So if someone has severe non-proliferative diabetes, we could go ahead and start treating with anti-VEGF agents um, at this point and reduce the progression of it to proliferative disease and actually reverse some of the retinopathy. So that's the hope. Then would you think that um, that you would also be able to use it for patients with proliferative disease instead of having to destroy the retina with with PRP? You could use this, and it would just prevent. Or is it just not powerful enough to once those neovascular once those uh, once those vessels actually kind of grow into the vitreous? What would your perspective be on that? It's a great question. I mean, if you look at the pharmacokinetics of it and say compare it to an intravitreal injection. It stays pretty stable. It's probably right in the mid range of the pharmacokinetics. So an intravitreal injection has a spikes up a little bit higher, but it comes way down relatively quickly. Whereas this is kind of right in the middle the whole time. So it's a real good question. I don't think it's a first line therapy for anything, to be honest with you. I think you, first of all, you want to make sure the patient's going to respond to anti-VEGF agents. And then you want to determine how much treatment is this patient going to need? Because some of the patients maybe only need to be treated every three or four months with an intravitreal injection. If that's the case, then it may not be worth going through the procedure with the additional potential risks of the procedure. So, you know, I think it's really going to depend. And so I think what probably what would happen is we'd give a few injections intravitreally shrink down that neovascularization, and then to maintain it in the long run without the neovascularization regrowing, you can put in a device. What we do now is we do PRP laser, as you know, and that's destructive to the retina. And this would be an alternative. You could also just give injections, but 
the problem is you got to keep doing that forever in a diabetic patient, as far as we know, uh, to, and, and that's difficult. I mean, these are young patients, they work and they get other complications. And if they didn't come back, say for six months, that neovascularization could come back and they could be in a real dire situation. So um, this would be a way of treating them long-term without PRP. So that, I think that's a great comment. Good thought. What about, um, what about, you know, the technical skill involved in placing this device in the first place? Is it going to be a, a significant uptick for retina, retina guys to learn it uh, well, or is it just part of their existing repertoire of skills they have that they can use on this? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, as retina surgeons, we do lots of types of you know, fairly complex surgeries, buckles and complex retinal detachment, sub-retinal surgery and things. But this is a little bit different. I mean, it's really a dissection of the sclera. We dissect down to the conjunctiva and then laser ablate the conjunctiva or the choroid. We dissect down to the choroid and then laser ablate that and then enter this space and put the device. There are a couple skills I think that we don't commonly use. And I, I, I do think it requires a lot of training because you have to be meticulous in your technique. We have to think about the conjunctiva and think about the fact that we're going to have this device in place for the patients for the rest of their life. So the wound has to be constructed very precisely. The conjunctiva and the tenons has to be covered over the wounds because we don't want this device to become exposed. Um, you know, certainly there are potential complications. And I think the, the, the complications of a surgical procedure like this compared to a single intervitreal injection is more. I mean, there's chances of hemorrhage, retinal detachment. There's probably a higher risk in the long run of endophthalmitis or infection in the eye, which can be really, you know, uh, vision threatening for some patients. Yep. Yeah. So it's a little bit of a trade-off. I mean, it's always, there's going to be a little bit more complications. I think they're fair, relatively reasonable. I think we can mitigate a lot of these complications with proper training and and very meticulous technique uh, to this. So yeah, it's gonna require training even for the best of the best picture retinal surgeons. They're gonna have to be trained in how to do this and they're gonna have to be comfortable. And there's a lot of things one can use to train with. And we've been even using virtual reality simulators for the refills and for the training that can give you a pretty good feel for what it's like to do this. So uh, I'm hopeful we'll be able to train a fair number of people to do this in the future. Then when you think about um, kind of in the future, so let's say it gets submitted quickly to the FDA, what's the timing? Is it still a year, probably two years for full approval? Yeah, I would imagine it'll be somewhere between one to two years. It's, you know, it's not going to be one of these expedited approvals because there's plenty of therapy already for the wet AMD patients. This is just an alternative. You know, usually if you have a disease process such as, say, dry AMD, and you're the first to mark, you know, you're the first to submit that you'll get an expedited approval because there's nothing else out there. But, you know, patients are being treated effectively with monthly injections. So probably a year or two is what I expect. Can you talk, can you walk me through, this is just, I think, you know, I, I um, the retinal surgeon that I use uh, in Omaha, mainly, there's about three guys. And and I have a good rapport with him, but I haven't really talked to him too much about his mindset on how he would change his treatment for different patients. But kind of walk us through when you see a patient in general with wet AMD, you know, how do you know whether or not you're going to treat monthly or treat and extend or 
you know, wait for as needed treatments. What, what's your decision tree on that in terms of, of your normal protocol? I'll tell you what I do. I, you know, there's certainly a variety of different ways people treat. And I don't know that one is necessarily better than another. I'm a person, I, I tend to treat initially um, with a treat and extend type mindset, meaning that I'm going to treat till I get them as dry as I think I can, meaning is if I can eliminate the retinal edema and the subretinal fluid, I feel good. The PEDs and the pigment epithelial detachments are much more difficult <laughs> to get rid of and often not an endpoint for, for us. But so I'll treat them on a monthly basis with intravitreal injection and uh, see them on a every four week basis for a while until I get them as dry as I think I can. And then try extending them a little bit, maybe a week or two um, and mm. see what happens. If they come back a week or two and there's more fluid and the vision's down and uh, you know they're more symptomatic, then we're gonna cut back to the four week interval. If they still look the same and the vision's the same, we may go another couple of weeks. That's generally what I do. I think alternatively, um, you can consider just PRN, which means you continue to do the same type of thing. You inject monthly until you sort of get them dry meaning that there's not a lot of retinal edema and as little subretinal fluid as possible. And then you might just hold off a treatment and see them back in a month and, and then initiate a treatment again if things start to worsen, be it vision or fluid uh, or new hemorrhages seen in the eyes. That's a kind of as-needed treatment. I think with the PRN therapy, the potential is that not only do you do less injections, but you also may provide them with a longer interval between treatments and patients sort of see some success in that like oh i don't have to come in every month i can come in every two months and that's that's a big mm -hmm. success it's rare that we get out past three months with many patients i think we start to get worried at that point that we might you know be taking too big of a risk so usually around three months is where we sort of decide that all right it's three months you're going to get a shot and then we'll keep you at this three month interval unless things look worse but that's kind of how i think about it i mean other people make the make the may just consider just do an injection every month, and I don't think that's necessarily wrong. It's in, in, at the end of the day, you'll probably get the best results overall, but you may be over treating quite a few patients that might might be able to get away with an injection every two or three months. Well, I mean, there's uh, there's certainly that attitude. I remember there was a study that um, a few years back, but it talked about um, you know head down positioning for patients with with macular holes and vitrectomies and. And that, you know, a, a 45 degree reading position might be just as effective. There was one surgeon that did it. I, I think I want to say it was in Florida with a T in his last name, but I'm always skeptical when I see, you know, a, a clinical study that's one surgeon at 98 or 98% 98 effective and self-reported. But uh, I, I thought that there was going to be a larger study on that, but essentially it just kept head down for five days or something like that. And so I yeah. asked, um, I asked the retinal surgeon that I use about that. And he goes, well, my, my two weeks of face down positioning works, you know, it works. He's, and so, right. so his, his perspective, I think was what you're saying is that, look, I can know that, that if I do it every month, they may not need it every month, but you know, if, if the patient misses for a few weeks or we're delayed or whatever, then, okay, we're just going to do an injection and we can plan for it. So I think there's something to that. Yeah. I, I mean, do you ever I, take I, that I approach? It, yeah. I mean, I do. I think that, I mean, if you really want to simplify it, you just make it a monthly thing and have them come in and get an injection. And you, if you looked at your population of patients, you probably have a pretty good, pretty good result overall. I mean, you know, we're always taking a risk when we do, say, PRN or treat and extend. I mean, 
we're risking a week or two, for instance, and it's possible a patient could come back with a big hemorrhage or something in that time period. So it's a risk we take. And if the patient is comfortable taking that risk, then we, then we do to try to make the burden a little bit better for them because, you know, it's not easy to go to the doctor every month, but um, patients do do it. And like you say, if they miss a week or two here or there because they get sick or something, it's probably not such a big deal either uh, if you're doing it every month. Yeah, so I agree. Well, so yeah. let me ask you, um, let me ask you a little bit, uh, kind of your, your experience you were, your group was one of the first that's, that sort of um, had this idea, is that right, for your, this is a totally separate topic, mm -hmm. but um, for kind of uh, aggregating a bunch of different retinal practices in the country together, yeah. is that correct? You were one of the, yeah. the, the primary ones. When well, you think yeah. about the benefits as a retina guy, what, what, uh, what's the benefits mainly um, to, to collectively be coming together in, a, in private equity? Yeah, I think for us, it's been, I mean, we, we had private equities in ophthalmology and optometry is nothing new, really. They're trying to do mostly these vertical integrations where they're going to integrate, you know, doctors of ophthalmology with other doctors, optometry, and maybe medical doctors into this vertical integration uh, system. For us, we were really kind of not that interested in that. I mean, we're a retina only group. And we get a lot of referrals from a variety of people. I mean, our referrals are quite desperate. I mean, not desperate, but disparate. I mean, there's quite a lot of optometry referrals, probably more than half of our referrals come from optometry. We get ophthalmology, primary care, endocrinologists, all types of folks that are referring to us. And so, you know, for us to integrate into a network, I think we would lose a lot of our referrals. Mm. And uh, I think that uh, they like sending to us just as a retina only group because, you know, the patients then we keep in good communication and, and, and the patients come to us for what they need and we can send them back to their, their doctor. You know, as from, for me, I, it was good because we integrated with a bunch of really great retina groups around the country. And you know, we do a lot of research amongst us. And I think there were, you know, sort of best practices, lessons to be learned, like how do you manage this? Or how do you manage the business aspect mm -hmm. of this? Or how do you do research? How do you train your technicians? How do you train your research coordinator? So I thought there was a lot to learn if, by sharing these things, you know, more brains, the more brains, the better, right? You know, one mm -hmm. brain's good, but you know, 50 brains are much better. And so Part of it was just sharing information. And um, I think working together, we can develop a real great research platform uh, to bring to clinical trials, a lot of these new drugs and things in a very organized fashion amongst our different sites. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of consolidation going on in medicine. And I really, you know, I think a lot of us wonder, what does a retina-only practice look like in five or 10 years? And I think that this is one potential scenario is that you, you know, you don't integrate locally as much as you integrate nationally uh, to try to, uh, you know, uh, efficiency of scale and, and such. So uh, I've been pretty excited about it in the last year. And I think that we work together. It's a doctor driven organization. I think the people who, uh, you know, in the business aspect realize that the product really is the doctors. And so we want to have the best trained doctors. We want them doing ethical 
procedures. We want them to be doing, offering patients the possibility to be part of clinical trials if they don't have therapy, because I've seen how, how it works. I mean, we have patients, I have patients that are still reading and driving that got involved in our clinical trials of anti-VEGF agents 15 years ago. And I know that they wouldn't be seeing now had they not been part of those trials. And so there's a lot of power to that. And in our field, there's still a lot of unmet need, you know, dry AMD, geographic atrophy, PVR, bad diabetes, non-perfusion, lots of things that we can help patients with in the future and a lot of genetic diseases as well. So. Well, I'll, uh, I'll be respectful of your time, Dante. This was a lot of fun for me to, to kind of pick your brain yes. on your experience and even just kind of take a peek behind the, the curtain. So thanks for being on. I really appreciate no, it. My, my pleasure, Chris. Uh, good talking to you as well. And, uh...